This is Franz. Welcome back to the Sailing in the Mediterranean podcast. Today I've got a, a guest with me today, Jules uh, from the boat Pluto. I met in uh, in Croatia on the island of Miljet. Mijet, I guess. I don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Mijet or Miljet or how do you pronounce it, Jules? I think Miljet, but I've never really an idea. Okay. We met on the island of Miljet uh, in 2011. Uh, we happened to tie up in front of the same little restaurant, and we got into a conversation. And Jules had traveled through the French canals, and it's something that I've always wanted to do, so I wanted to pick his brain as much as possible. But not only did he give me a lot of information, he sent me an entire log of his travels through the French canals from Britain. And uh, and he's kindly agreed to let me post pieces of it as time goes by onto the onto the website. And the first post I made last week, it takes the first part of his journey uh, from, uh, let's see, it was from Gravelines down to Campigne. Is that how you say that? Compiègne. Compiègne. I don't speak any French at all. So. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, I think they signed the... Um, Second World War agreement at the end of the war. Oh, there in that in that little town. Yeah, in a in a railway carriage. Okay, and as time goes on, I, I, I've suggested to Jules that he takes his uh, his entire document and put it into a PDF format, and uh, and and put it on a service that I, it's called um, Gumroad which allows you to monetize any digital material you create. They, I think they get a, a 25 cents plus 10% of any download that you do. And if he does that, I'm going to put a link to his, uh, his, his uh, log on the site, and uh, you can download the whole thing into a PDF format. So I think it's a great story, Jules. Let's, let me first of all ask you, you're retired now, is that correct? Yes, I've been retired for nearly 10 years. And have you sailed a long time? Have you been sailing your entire life? Uh, yeah, when I was a, a child, uh, I used to sail with my father. I mean, he's up 101 now, and he was sailing in the 1930s. I wasn't around. But in the 60s, he had boats, and I used to sail with him. And then when we had children, we stopped sailing except for charters. And uh, prior to retirement, we bought a small boat. And then when I retired, they bought this 11-meter boat, a southerly, which has a lifting keel, which enables us uh, to go down shallow waters like the inland waterways. So that was the the determining factor for you choosing that boat as you wanted to spend time in the canals then? Yes, it was. Uh, With the keel up, we draw under three feet. Uh, With it down, it's nearer six feet. And uh, as you well know, the problem with sailing yachts is they have deep keels or bilge keels. And sadly, the French inland waterways are getting shallower due to the lack of uh, commercial or industrial use. So they're not, they're not uh, dredge them like they used to, I guess. No, they're not. They used to be nearly all the big ones, 1.8 meters, and the very big ones probably still are. But if there are no barges going through, uh, they silt up, and in the Canal du Midi, which runs from east to west across southern France, it's really becoming a major problem. 
So if I want to sail the French canals, my my boat with about a five foot draft really wouldn't be capable of doing that. <laughs> five foot, yes, that would be touch and go. I think if you stuck to the major waterways like the Rhone, these are big rivers: the Rhone, the Saone, the Seine, and probably the Marne canals, you'd be okay. But as soon as you try and get onto the prettier canals, then you run into a water shortage. Okay. Well, let's go back to the start of your trip and tell me first of all, why did you decide to go that route instead of around the Bay of Biscay? <laughs> Two reasons. One, we're not very brave sailors, and Bay of Biscay actually <laughs> is quite daunting, even for very experienced sailors. But secondly, we love France, and uh, to be able to go nearly a thousand miles across France at walking pace. Uh, is a fantastic opportunity to save uh, the country, uh, meet the people. It was wonderful. So, you, you, how long did you plan ahead, and and tell me the planning process that you went through? Well, the dream, of course, started probably when I got to my first post. I was a consultant to cardiothoracic surgeon, and from then I was dreaming of retirement. So that was the dream. The, Planning started several years before I actually retired when we looked at lots of boats, uh, boat shows mainly, and then it just really narrowed itself down uh, to the southerly, which has the lifting keel. I suppose we spent two or three years dreaming and planning, and then I retired, and southerlies don't come on the market very often, and uh, this one came on within three months of retirement, so that rather precipitated things. Tell me about the boat. Who manufactures it? Is it still being manufactured? Yeah. Uh, North Shore are the builders. They're probably the last English boat builder to be in continuous production, uh, having gone bust at some stage. They're down on the south coast. Uh, They've made a variety of different boats. Our one we bought in the 1990 model, but they've gone very, very upmarket now, and there are some stunning new southerlies, 40, 50 feet and longer, all with lifting keels. If anybody's interested, they just need to go to North Shore um, and look them up. There are some beautiful boats, but all with lifting keels, and sadly, along with the beauty, goes to the price. They've become quite expensive. Uh, one of my listeners, Rick from Denmark, was debating on how to get to the Mediterranean, whether to go through the Bay of Biscay, go across the Bay of Biscay around Portugal, or through the French canals. And I th- and I gave him your email address, and he may contact you direct. He's got two children, uh, I think uh, eleven and twelve years old, that he plans on taking. And I I I I think going through the French canals sounds delightful if you have the right boat for it. Then. That's absolutely right. If you don't draw too much, it is delightful. There's one problem with Scandinavians, and we've met, they're all the same, forgive them, I hope they'll forgive me, but they go flat out, non-stop, trying to get to the med in the shortest possible time. And I would say this is a rare and golden opportunity to go down slowly. We took um, four months, two lots of two months separated by a tunnel, 
And I would say that was time to explore France and enjoy the trip. Just don't rush it. So you would go basically about four or five knots. Is that about the speed you would go through the canals? Yes. Yeah, you're actually limited to about five knots on nearly all the canals. Uh, Once you get onto the big rivers with the commercial traffic, then you can go faster. But uh, four or five knots would be very good standing speed. Now, I've got your log up on another computer, and I look at it, and some of those canals are nice and small that you went through, very, very small canals. And you could, in your boat, you could go into those little canals, couldn't you? Yes. Uh, it's a matter of draft, and there are several very good uh, pilot books which give the current draft. Uh, I think one of the best ones, I don't know if it'll come over on on the screen, which is the Inland Waterways of um, France by David Edwards May. It's by it, uh, I see Imray publishes it. They do a lot of yeah. cruising books. I'll add that one to my recommended books then. So yeah. on the website, yeah, I've bought a lot of the Imray books. They're great books yeah. as a general rule. It's a, the latest edition has only just come out, but it gives the depth of nearly all the canals. Uh, which is very important for planning, and also the Cruising Association of Britain publish a guide to the inland waterways, which is updated every year and would be an essential purchase, I think, before planning. It really is just a matter of depth. Perhaps I should add, for anybody else planning the trip, there is the question of the mast. Obviously, you have to have that removed. Yes, tell me, how did you do that? Did you? Because I noticed in your photographs, and the, the mast is not with you, so you must have shipped it ahead then. Yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, people try and cut costs by carrying the mast on deck, but most masts are longer than the boat, and they stick out until six or eight feet each end with all the delicate bits very exposed. And locks are fairly rough and tumble places, and there's a real risk of damage. And if you can afford that little bit extra, I would have it transported to your destination. We had our mast removed at Graveline, which is near Dunkirk or Calais in the north-west of France. And a very good mast transporter, Wolfgang Graf, uh, took it down to the Mediterranean. And when we got down there, there it was waiting for us. And I really would recommend finding those extra few pounds, dollars, or euros for that, for peace of mind and comfort. So so you do you have to, when you do that, do you have to tell them when you're going to be arriving uh, in the Mediterranean, or can they store it for a year or two years, or how long will they store it for you? Well, yes. Uh, yes, they will store it. Port Napoleon is the uh, biggest marina at the mouth of the Rhone, which is the the way you pop out into the Mediterranean, and they'll happily store masts. I don't know how much they charge now for it, but they'll store a mast for as long as you pay them. Ours was taken off in May, and we went and, well, we didn't actually have it put on until May the next year. And now we're coming back very slowly over several years. Wolfgang has brought it up to Calais, which again, as I say, is northwest corner. And it's sitting there awaiting our arrival. So where is your boat right now? We're slap in the middle of France. Uh, Lyon is the biggest town uh, most people will have heard of. 
were about 200 miles north of that. I think probably everyone's heard of Dijon, because that's where the Dijon mustard comes from, and we're not far from that either. Okay. Mostly so, level okay. with Geneva. So the first year you took four months to get through the canals down to the Mediterranean, is that right? Yeah. Okay, and we'll be posting different chapters on the website as we go along. Uh, is there anything, do you, if, first of all, did you have to get a license? What are the requirements to be able to sail the canals? Good question. Um, I don't know what your requirements are when sailing in the Mediterranean, but usually they expect an international certificate of competence. I don't, have you got something like that? Oh, I have a Coast Guard uh, master's uh, yeah, commercial sure. license. So, but Americans don't have to have licenses to sail boats. So we, when we That's sail in the Mediterranean, great. most Americans don't have any certification at all. But the Mediterranean authorities, governments, can insist on um, a certificate of competence. But they're easy enough to get from your own country, and what you've got would be fine. So we've got that because even to charter a boat now they're required. If you're going down the French Inland Waterways, you have to pass a very simple test called SEVNI, C-E-V-N-I. I don't know what it stands for, but it's the rule of the road. Uh, it just proves that you know the rule of the road. You can take it online, I think. Now, is it in French or is it in English? English. Oh, English. okay, okay. That, yeah, that helps a lot. <laughs> so you have to have a, some form of certificate of competence and a Sydney exam. Uh, otherwise than that, there's nothing special apart from your insurance, obviously. But you have to pay the French Inland Waterways for a license. It varies. Uh, it's for a few days, weeks, months, or years. Uh, it's the VNF, Voie Navigable Francais. Uh, you can pay that online as well. They're just putting, because of the French economic situation, they're just putting the prices up. So I don't know how much it will be, but I would guess, this is really off the top of my head, but this year it'll be, for us, 250 to £350. Pounds. So up that to dollars. Okay. That's all locks, no locks. You don't have to pay to go through any lock at all. And in many places you can stop and you've got free showers, Free Wi-Fi and free electricity. So, would you? Did you go to? I noticed there were at least one marina you stopped at on your way through on the first chapter of your book. Yeah. Other than that, did you just sort of pull over and anchor on the sides where you went? Yes, yes, we did. Uh, there, a lot of towns have a town key. Uh, sometimes with bollards, sometimes with electricity, and we tended to stop at those. Uh, the romance really is to just pull in onto the bank and tie up to a tree but unfortunately the edges of canals and rivers are often rocky and there are brambles and stones and the life doesn't really come up to the romance so we tended to go on to old barge keys or town keys or things like that overnight sometimes in the middle of nowhere sometimes in the middle of a town were they crowded? Did you ever get to one that was difficult to find a spot at? No. <laughs> no. We avoided, not deliberately, but we avoided the 
peak charter areas, which is sort of Burgundy and Nivernais in the middle, and the Canal du Midi, which is entirely charter. We avoided those, and in particular, we didn't go in July, August. But of, out of season as we were, no, there was no competition for space whatsoever. And the other bizarre thing is there are no, almost no French boats on the inland waterways. We only met two in our whole trip. That's strange. That's strange. Very. So you, you, you had, and would you, when you, when you were in a crossing situation, head-on situation, was there always enough room to get by each boat? Uh, if it's a barge coming towards you on a, one of the old canals, then you are really advised to pull right into the bank to let it get through. They're constrained by draft these days, and uh, they, you, know, you just need to get out of their way. You usually know they're coming because you can feel the water level rising as they push the water in front of them. On the big rivers, then it's standard rule of the road. But we, we had no problems with the commercial traffic. In fact, we found them very friendly indeed. Okay, okay. Do you have a specific story of one of your great experiences that sticks in your mind on your way down to the, the Mediterranean? Or was it just all delightful? Oh, no. Far, far, far from it. Um, first, first of all, you always imagine the weather is going to be lovely. And uh, France is, is, like England, has lots of rain and so on. So we did a lot of traveling in, in the rain. We have one or two mechanical problems. I'm just trying to think of specific experiences. Uh, locks, of course, are the most important event in the whole passage, and there are hundreds of them. Some of the locks on the Seine are horrible, uh, very turbulent, and we did get thrown about badly in one of those. In contrast, there's La Baleine on the Rhone, uh, where the rise and fall is over 75 feet, which is about the height of a cathedral. And there's no turbulence or anything. It was a complete and utter joy. I'm hard off the top of your head to think of a particular experience. Hey, hey Jules, do me a favor, and because uh, you're breaking up a little bit, turn off the video, and then, uh, and then that might make the bandwidth a little better for the audio. Okay, so you were saying about... The, the locks, and one went up oh, almost 70, 75 feet I, then. Yes, that's impressive. And it empties just like your bath does. Uh, with no turbulence, you just get in and go down or go up. That was very wonderful. So were the locks the big ex the, the uh, major memory of the experiences? I noticed one of your pictures, you go through a long, long tunnel as, one of your, uh, as part of the canal. Right. Now, I suppose, thank you for reminding me about that. Uh, Vanessa, my wife, whom you met, certainly rates that as an interesting experience uh, because actually that tunnel is uh, over four kilometers, which is over two miles, isn't it? Yes. And um, you go, it's single file traffic, but you're both lots approach at the same time there's a passing place in the middle but it's 
very dark in there, noisy with the sound of the diesels of the barges going through, a slightly smoky. Uh, Vanessa described it as going into a dragon's den, really. And um, after the two or three miles, when you pop out the other end, it is a, a massive relief. And of course, the other thing, it only just occurred to me recently, all boats had prop walk and tend to go a little bit sideways. And over a stretch of a mile, where it's only three feet wider than you each side, your boat starts to crab, uh, which makes it a bit more interesting in the dark. But don't be put off. It's actually very easy. Did you have a lot of bumpers along the side all the time? I've talked to some people and they say they put a bunch of tires out and just leave them out there for the entire trip. What did you do? Uh, yes, we didn't use tires. They're very frowned upon because I think they float and get stuck in the lock or sink and get stuck in the lock gates. They don't like tires, really. Uh, we had standard bumpers or fenders, as you described them, and... Uh, if we're going through a whole series of locks, we just left them hanging over the side in a very unseamanlike way. If they were long trips, like on the Rhone or the Sone, then we'd pull them up on board and try and look seamanlike. But the other thing to say is we had a thing called a fender board, a great big long plank lying outside the fenders uh, or bumpers. Uh, so that the plank took the scuffing off the lock, lock walls. The lock walls are concrete, they're rough, horrid, and dirty sometimes. And if you have a plank outside your fenders, that takes all the rub and saves the scuffing on the fenders. There's a picture in the log, which will come up sometime, showing you how you have to drill the holes in it so the rope doesn't get chafed. But oh, it's okay. essential. Okay, so you took four months slowly working your way down, and you went through Paris, correct? Yes, we did. Now, that would be one of the highlights. Uh, it's fairly hairy going up into Paris because of all the uh, bateau mouche, these tourist boats, restaurant boats, which thunder up and down. As long as you dodge them, you go past. There's a one-way system around Notre Dame, and uh, then you go around the other side, and there's a lock and you go into a marina, the Arsenal, and uh, don't have to book, but they don't want you to book. And uh, more often, it's pretty cheap, and you are slapped in the middle of Paris, right by the Bastille tube station. It is quite incredible. I'm just looking at Google Earth right now, and I'm zooming in on uh, the island there. So when you're coming around, and you're coming from west to east, I, I assume, in there. Um, mm, yeah, most of or more, a bit more north-south. Okay. That, that's way anyway, yeah. A bit more north to south. Yeah, you're right. Okay. So, when, so how long did you stay in Paris? About 10 days. Longer than we expected, slightly, because family came over and I got flu or something. There were about 10 days. And okay. uh, from memory, it was about, uh, of course, prices would have gone up, about £25 sterling per night, which for a four-berth boat in the middle of Paris is pretty reasonable. Okay, so I see as you're, as you're coming in there, there's a, a big marina off to the left. Is that the one you're talking about over on the uh, left bank? The 
big river is the River Thames, yes. Right, and then there's a little spur that goes off of it to the left there. Do you go under a road, is that right? A couple roads? Um, sure. I mean, you swing straight off the Seine into this marina. Right. Yeah, okay, I see it here, and it looks like there's a lot of boats that are tied up in there then. Okay. Oh, that's, did you have bicycles on board? Yes. I, I would say that we had folding bicycles, uh, and I would think they're essential for any canal work anyway, uh, because France has turned its back on the waterways, and all the shops and restaurants and everything now face the auto routes or the major roads. And so if you want to go into town, quite often it's a short bicycle ride. Okay, so that was your main traffic, or your main source of transportation. Would yeah. you, Do you have very many guests join you on the trip, or was it just you and Vanessa? Well, no, uh, we didn't have many guests. Uh, our son came and joined us. I think that was it, just the pair of us for the whole trip. Yeah. Okay, okay. But your boat, how many people could you comfortably sleep on, on your boat? Comfortably four, really. Oh, okay. Four cabin and two in the aft cabin. I mean, the makers will say you can sleep seven, but that would be for a weekend. So through Paris and then on down through Paris, and uh, what was your next most memorable city that you visited along the way? Oh, well, the next really memorable thing was when we swung off the River Seine, the big commercial river, onto a river called the Loire, L O I N. Moray sur Wang, a big river, and we're on a little canal. And you're probably familiar with the Impressionist of these French canals. And uh, Sisley, one of the great Impressionists, lived at Moray, and he had painted it, and it was just like the paintings. And we suddenly in hand, this is what we had been looking for. How long did you spend in that area? Did you, was it just from small village to small village then? Yes, from then on, um, down through the the uh, Loire, and then there's a parallel with the River Loire, great big river, which is very shallow. There's the canal lateral à la Loire, and we went along the canal, and there are no big towns from then on. It's small towns and villages. Now, do you speak French, or does your wife speak French? I speak what's called schoolboy French. Uh, my wife, fortunately, speaks very good French. She actually uh, taught English in France when she was very young. So she speaks very good French. And unfortunately, of course, that uh, discourages me from speaking a lot of French, because it's far easier just to let her talk. Well, I guess it's a little harder to learn a language as you get older, too, isn't it? In Schoolboy French, I'm surprised. I've got the book out now. I'm trying to relearn it. Schoolboy French is enough to get you through, but that's sufficient. Yes. And the French are very, very accommodating. If you're prepared to speak just a few words of French to them, the only ones you know, uh, having made that little effort, they will go out of their way to make you very comfortable. Now, are you living in France or in England right now? We ourselves live in England, um, just outside London, in the 
county of Kent. Uh, now the boat is in France, we can take the car across the ferry and be down on the boat in about six hours from leaving the house. Oh, okay. So what are your plans for this next year then? Um, we haven't any really. We've got a year's berth where we are. And I tell you, berths on inland waterways are about one third or less of the price of Mediterranean berths. Uh, we have no specific plans. My father is 101. Uh, he's uh, remarkably well, but we don't like to go away for long periods uh, and leave him. So we'll be popping back and forth to the boat. Okay. So let me talk about you took the boat down to the Mediterranean, you dropped it, uh, you popped into the Mediterranean at Port Napoleon. How long did it take to re-step your mast? Oh, Port Napoleon are amazingly efficient. They put about five or six boats in the water every hour, and remasting took about an hour, I suppose. Uh, but then we had to have a rigger to come and properly tune the rig uh, subsequently, which again takes an hour or two. Okay. So that was in 2006. Yes. And when, I saw, when I saw you, it was 2011. So did you spend uh, from 2006 to 2011 uh, hopping around the Mediterranean in the summers? Or, or would you do like I do, go down to your boat, sail, and then go home for the winter? How did you arrange your trip through the Mediterranean? Uh, basically, we would go for uh, out in May and June, uh, which is a nice month, and then come back home July, August, when it's more touristy, more expensive and hot, and then return in September, October. Uh, so it's May, June, and September, half October. That's where we did it. So you would usually get about four months a summer then sailing? Yes, or a bit less. Ideally four months, but sometimes a bit less than that. But that's the plan, yeah. So tell me where. Tell me of your adventures in the Mediterranean. Where did you sail to? And and uh, I know I saw you in Croatia, but I'm, I'm sure you went around Italy and possibly through the Balearic Islands. Tell me about your trip through the Mediterranean. Yes, so fascinating. Uh, we did the French Riviera. Uh, amazingly, when we got to Cannes, we called them up and said, have you got a berth? And they said, yes, come on in. And we discovered we'd arrived slap in the middle of the Cannes Film Festival. It was quite incredible to be there in the middle of that, purely by chance. And they didn't charge any extra. So the French Riviera, the Italian Riviera, down the uh, west coast of Italy, which is not one of the most hospitable areas, really, for cruising, down to... Naples, the Bay of Naples, which is ludicrously expensive. And then finally to Sicily, where we left the boat over winter. Where did you uh, winter it in Sicily? Was it in Porta Rosa? No, it was in a riposto, very near Mount Etna. Okay. Erupting black stuff all over your boat. Uh, they dropped our boat there. In the, in the yard and then wouldn't admit it had happened. So that was an embarrassing period. And then we went across to Greece, to Corfu, which is a good place to stop. Did you stop in uh, Syracuse in Sicily as well? We visited that by train, I think. 
Okay. Yeah. And you didn't, go, you didn't go down to Malta then? You went straight from Sicily to Greece? Yes, by the southern bit of uh, Italy, yes. We went through Crotone, Crotone, and then across to Greece. So you went through the Aeolian Islands, am I correct? Uh, we didn't really go to those at all. We, no, we just went straight to um, Sicily, then straight across. We didn't, didn't go to them. Oh, okay. Um, I regret. I was just going to ask you what your experience was in the Aeolian Islands, because when I was there, it was very windy, just like the name suggests. So Yes, that's right. You've been there. <laughs> yes, that put us off a bit, actually. Uh, and we didn't have the time at the time. So we didn't do them, partly because they were windy. I think they live up to their name. When you sailed south, were you able to see the island of Volcano erupting? Or were you too far on shore? Were you too close to the mainland there? We weren't close enough. No, we didn't. Okay, okay. Then, uh, so, to, so to Greece, so straight to Greece then, and you sailed from Corfu. Did you go into the Aegean as well? No, we didn't. We spent a, a year or so pottering around the Ionian, which is, as you know, very simple cruising. And then later we went down the west coast of southern Greece, the Peloponnese. Have you been down there? No, I haven't. I've been as far south as uh, Kefalonia, and then yeah. I've gone straight over into... Um, uh, into the Corinth, the, the Bay of Corinth. So I've never been down the, the, the Peloponnese coast. It's a lovely cruising area. Suddenly you get away from all the flotillas. And, um, you've got real Greece. You can actually moor upside, you know, alongside in harbors and so on. And we went down to Kalamata, uh, where we left the boat for the summer. It's very hot there. And then came back up. That was a great trip. I'd recommend that to any of your listeners. It's a lovely bit of sailing. And then um, the next year, we came up towards where we met you. We did uh, Albania, Montenegro, Croatia, where we met you in Okukli. And then we went up and left the boat in Italy at the top, Mont Falcone, which is a wonderful place to leave your boat. You just got done publishing an article on your trips through Albania, correct? Yes, it's just been published in Yachting Monthly, an English journal, heavily edited by them. But uh, we we enjoyed Albania. Uh, I, you've been there and didn't find much to recommend it, I think. That's, that was my experience, but everybody has their own experiences. So tell me about yours. Well, our experience, I suppose the pleasure we had of it was... We were almost alone there. There were no tourist boats, as you well know. And uh, to be the only, I think at one stage, we were the only boat in, only pleasure boat in Albania. And uh, we found the Albanians very friendly. And uh, we went into Tirana, the capital city, and enjoyed enthusiasm. I think we just enjoyed seeing a developing country that was keen to grasp any opportunity and meet foreigners. I guess what I didn't like about Albania was the need to check in and check out of every every port and use a commercial agent. Yeah. That was my that that's what put me off the most. Yes, that's right. Uh, you have to have an agent, don't you? Yes. And uh 
the whole idea of, of being a sailor is to be able to come and go as you please from place to place, and Albania doesn't have that trust in people yet, I guess. No, but it took two days to check out of Greece. Uh, you, the bureaucracy in Greece is quite unbelievable, <laughs> having to get an 86-cent stamp from the income tax office before they'll stamp your papers. It took us two days to get the papers stamped to get out, and it took us two hours with the agent in um, Albania. And uh, as you know, Montenegro required to check in, check out. Croatia uh, are very, very efficient, but uh, there's still all the paperwork to go through. So each country has its own bureaucracy, isn't it? Partly the pleasure of sailing, you meet different people different bureaucracies, but Greece is enough to drive you mad. <laughs> I, uh, I couldn't believe how long it took to check in through Greece. I, it, just, it just baffled me. I, I sat there in Corfu, at the big commercial port in Corfu, at last, was it last summer? Yes, it was last summer when I was sailing through. And you wouldn't think this is the first time they've ever had to fill out a receipt book, Right. But I showed up at around, oh, I think it was around 3.30, and the guys at the custom office said, hey, it's too late, it's too late. I said, what time do you close? They said, 5 o'clock. I said, it's not too late. Here, I'll fill out the paperwork for you. So I, start, I filled out all the paperwork for them, and then the two guys in the office started arguing over how to fill out a receipt for, I think it was like 2 euros or something. And literally, they argued for a half an hour. And you would think that after 30 years on the job, they would know how to fill out a receipt book. But I guess not, or that's maybe the fun they have in the office during the day. But I, I, just, couldn't, I just couldn't fathom that these guys had the jobs that they did. No, and that's why Greece is in the mess that it is in, <laughs> I think. And your experience is not unusual. And the, the only thing that stopped us taking a slightly more belligerent tone was that we saw them taking some prisoners out of the cells in Corfu, the same office you were in, and they were handcuffed, being marched out. And I thought, oh, no, we don't want to go that way. <laughs> yeah. But you see, so it's two days in Greece and the two hours in Albania. I see it to be slightly different. Uh, <laughs> I think I was more efficient. It still took me about two hours to clear in, uh, in into Greece. And when I cleared out into Turkey, it really only took me about a half an hour. So I think I, I don't know, maybe, maybe they're uh, a little tougher on the Europeans and the Americans there, but it, I didn't no, find. It, it depends who you get, what they're doing. Um, and I think the biggest problem was we told the Greeks we were going to Albania. Oh, okay. That, that, don't ever do that. Just tell them you're going to Italy. Okay, okay. That. But I noticed when I was in Sarandi in Albania that they had tour boats going back and forth between Corfu and Sarandi. So, I mean, they've got a little bit of tourism going back and forth. Mm. Yes, they've got that lovely Roman site, Butrint. Right. Mm -hmm. It's only about 10, 15 miles in. Did you go there? I did, and when I went there, I noticed two big buildings that were tipped over. Did you hear the story on those buildings? Oh, but I heard that they hadn't got planning permission. That's right. So some and they blew them up. <laughs> I, I put a, a couple of pictures on the website of these buildings, these big concrete buildings that have been 
tipped over. I guess they took a bulldozer up and tipped them over, so they've been sitting there forever now. Yes, that's right. And it was a gather because they didn't have planning permission. Love to introduce that in our village here. I'd go back onto the parish council immediately if I could blow up all the buildings without planning. <laughs> so you worked your way up through Albania and then to Montenegro and, and Croatia. And did you spend a couple of years in Croatia or, or what? No, how- unfortunately, only a year in Croatia. Uh, it's the year we met you, uh, because we wanted to get the boat up to Montalcone for the winter and uh, then get it transported back to the canals the next year. So after I saw you, where did you go then? Well, we just went steadily north. We left the boat for a couple of months um, just north of Split, uh, Agana Marina, I think it is, or Marina Agana, which uh, is a nice marina in, uh, with not uh, not commercialized, shall we say, in that it's in the middle of a town, uh, under into the town to the shops and so on. So we left the boat in Marina Agana for two months, in July, and then up through um, the rest of Croatia, stopping um, on on the way and then to uh, finally leave the boat up in Montalcone. Now, is that in Italy or is that in Croatia? That's in Italy. And if uh, anybody is listening to your subsequent broadcast, the Montalcone yard is quite a long way up the river and is very, very reasonable. It's run by an Austrian, not an Italian, that's very efficient. And couldn't be more helpful. And an awful lot of our cruising association members leave their boats there. A very good place to overwinter. Well, I see a big marina there. Is that the one you're talking about? I'm looking at Google Earth. There's a large marina right there. There are several up there. Um, and the little marina right up at the very, very end of the canal is the one. I can't remember its name offhand. Uh, there's a big marina just before it. Uh, which is expensive, and the final marina, I think it's Nautic, N-A-U-T-I-C, Nautic. Okay, yeah, I see, I, oh, I see, yeah, I, I can see it right now. There's a, there's boats lined all the way up and down that area there, through there, so. Very, uh, very safe, because it's, and they're, they're very caring when they lift the boats out. It's a good place to leave on the boat, and it gives you, you're only two or three days from there, and you're right down in uh, the middle of Croatia. Okay, so now you pulled your boat out there, and you had it trucked to where then? Right, that was up across to France, a town called Valence, which is on the Rhone. But, and again, if anybody is thinking of doing this, you won't get a transporter uh, to come into Italy to pick up your boat if it's a wide road. Italian bureaucracy is literally impossible. Uh, it could take them six months and a lot of money to get permission to come in. It's mad. So you have to take your boat a very short distance across to Slovenia. We went to a town called Kopa, K-O-P-E-R, and uh, where they have about five boat movements a day, uh, boats being delivered, 
from places like Bavaria, the Bavaria yachts and so on, and boats been taken up. They're incredibly efficient in Copa, and all the boat transporters are used to coming to Copa to pick up boats. So that's where we went. The Italians are just doing themselves out of all the trade. So did you sail your boat to Copa and pull it out there? Did you pull it out in... in uh... well, the wind blows up and down there, and uh, just six hours on one reach. Unbelievable. And uh, yes, it was a very good sail. We dropped down to Venice first. Uh, oh, okay. So you went? Did you go into Venice and spend some time yeah. there? Yes. Have you been there? No, I haven't. It's one of those things I probably won't end up doing now. But I'd heard about it. Yeah, oh, it's worth doing if you're in the area. I think uh, it is worth doing just to sail in. It's um, bedlam. The Italians. There's so much boating, uh, the rule of the road just goes out of the window. <laughs> uh, it's, it's madness, but the delightful, frenetic madness. And we were in a little marina on the Isle of San Giorgio, which is bang opposite St. Mark's. And uh, so we could sit in the boat and look across at St. Mark's in the evening. It's unbelievable it's an experience that certainly we won't forget. I know Vanessa always wanted to go there in a boat. I've seen that marina when I visited Venice, and I've walked around it. It's just a little tiny marina, right? Yeah, it belongs to a yacht club. Yes, okay. I've, I've walked through it saying, oh, okay, if I ever come up here, this would be a nice place to stay. And you actually stayed there then? Yes, we did. I imagine it was fairly expensive. <laughs> um, not as expensive as the Bay of Naples, but uh, yes, it's a... Uh, I think it was about a um, 37-foot boat was about 90 euros a night. Okay, okay. In in the Bay of Naples, did you happen to visit Gaeta? Yes, yes, we did. Yes. That's what? where Italy got its independence, I think, wasn't it? I With, think so. When they signed up all the little disparate countries to become united italy yeah you entered to gaeta yeah yeah i i wintered my boat there i pulled my boat out of the water there and wintered it there one year and i didn't think it was too expensive there it didn't seem to bother me too much in, at no, least in that, gaeta. The gaeta is probably all right it's not quite down in that area of capri and all around there well jules i really appreciate your time this is going to be a great podcast i'm sure a lot of people are going to listen to it and when when we're ready we'll post another chapter of your book up there and and when you get your when you get your book in uh, uploaded to Gumroad, make sure you give me the uh, the the link, and I will put it on every one of the web pages that we do for you. Okay. Well, thanks, Frank. Uh, it was wonderful. It was an amazing opportunity. I'll, I'll explore that. And as I've said, I'm very very grateful for you to for you to introduce us to Gumroad and the possibilities arising from that. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot, uh, Jules. I appreciate it. We'll keep in touch. Season this year. Okay. Thank you very much. Right. Bye bye. That was a great interview with Jules. I appreciate the time he took to let me conduct this interview. He gave me a lot of good information. I hope you got a lot out of it as well. Please check uh, his post on our website, medsailor.com, and it's the menu item Canal Cruise. That's a simple way to find it. There's a first chapter of his book that he wrote, his his log that he wrote. I'll be posting more as time goes on. 
a little bit of housekeeping, please go to iTunes and go on there and write a review for me and give me a five-star rating. I appreciate it. Any comments? I'd love to hear from my listeners. Please email me at franz, F-R-A-N-Z, at medsailor.com, M-E-D-S-A-I-L-O-R.com. I always like getting notes, comments, suggestions. If you have some experiences or some information you could share with the other listeners, I always appreciate that. I'm looking for an attorney that we can talk to about the value-added tax. And also I'm looking for a yacht broker to interview about the process of buying and selling boats in the Mediterranean, where to go, who to see, what areas to look at, what types of boats they have, and so forth. So if you know of anybody that I could talk to that would conduct an interview and share their information with our listeners, I'd appreciate it. Again, thank you very much for listening. This is Franz. Hopefully I'll get one of these out again next week. Bye.